continuing our exploration of this theme of this interweaving or interrelatedness between the qualities of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity, the Brahma-viharas, and these right efforts. I wanted to start this afternoon by reflecting a little bit about the Brahma-viharas themselves as a as a collection, as a group. Yesterday, Gil spoke about the quality of metta, of love, of the friendliness of the care, the word metta being related to this uh, term mita, meaning friend. And so the other words, perhaps, than love might resonate for you. Maybe just simply connectedness, care, kindness, friendliness. Love at times can have a particular meaning for us in in our own uh, history, our own conditioning. And so sometimes it's helpful to try on different words to see what might uh, resonate and fit. If the word love for us comes with some baggage, for instance, it might be useful to explore some other words. My sense of the quality of metta itself is the feeling when I've touched into it, when I touch into it is this quality of the heart that is unconstricted, that is able to connect without reservation, without limitation, without demands, without conditions. And the quality of metta being this unconditional quality of love that doesn't have requirements placed on it. And so that quality of the open heart, the unconstricted heart, connects, meets, resonates with the world without resistance. And in that meeting of the world, as we walk through our lives and have different experiences and encounter different situations. Sometimes we encounter struggle, stress, suffering. And if the heart is open, that that heart of metta, that unconstricted, resonant heart, when that heart is connected with or meets or touches or is touched by suffering. The natural response of that heart is this quality of compassion. And so 
to me, there's a very intimate connection between the quality of metta and the quality of compassion. It is, it's, it, for me, it's more the sense of the heart of that connected heart naturally turning towards the heart of compassion when suffering is present. This is a natural movement and expression, a natural expression. And when that open heart meets or encounters celebration and joy, delight, encounters someone who's having wonderful things happen in their lives, that heart of, of connectedness resonates in sympathy with that joy. Sometimes this quality of mudita is called empathetic or sympathetic joy. And I like that term because it, it evokes the, the sympathetic um, joy, evokes this uh, from music, the quality of um, sympathetic vibration in, in music. If you have two strings that are close to each other and you pluck one string, the other string can resonate kind of in sympathy and create some beautiful overtones. And that's what happens with our heart when, we're in, when, the, when the unconstricted heart is in the presence of joy, it resonates with joy. And I have this kind of sense sometimes of this unconstricted heart being like a bowl of jello. And when that, uh, you know, when it's touched by suffering, it, it kind of quivers with that suffering, and that's compassion. When that bowl of jello is touched by joy, it quivers in sympathy with that, and murita is the result. And so this unconstricted heart has these different flavors depending on what's happening in our lives. And so compassion is the response of the open heart when it meets suffering. And the quality of equanimity, the fourth Brahmavihara, to me it's got a slightly different flavor to it in some ways. It, uh, it feels equanimity being a balance of mind, a non-reactivity. In some ways it feels to me like it's the quality that allows that heart to be fully unconstricted, that allows the heart that's meeting suffering to not be swamped by suffering, to not be pulled into, into pity or to overwhelm that equanimity, that balance of mind allows the heart to stay connected 
in the face of all the joys and all the sorrows. And sometimes with, um, with joy in our lives, you know, that equanimity will help us to connect with that joy fully and not somehow feel like, how can I possibly feel joy when there's so much suffering in the world? The heart can feel both, resonate with both. And to me, this quality of equanimity is this balance that allows the heart to really connect with, fully connect with whatever is happening. This morning, during uh, a sitting, I was uh, reflecting on this quality of equanimity, which I tend to think of more as a, a mental quality than a heart quality. But I was playing with the feeling as a heart feeling, you know, feeling into the, you know, with that place of the balanced mind, what does the heart feel? And what an image came into my mind, that of a very deep river. A, a still flowing river, not a stagnant pond, not a, a pond that has no movement because there's no flow, but of a, of a, of a river that is so deep that the surface is, is still and smooth, but there is movement. That movement will, that movement of that river will flow around and with the conditions. It won't uh, get bound up. And so to me, this, this kind of evoked a kind of heart quality of equanimity, this still flowing river. And so this second right effort that we're looking at today, Gill's version. If you're making it worse, stop making it worse. The um, definition from the texts to generate the desire to abandon unwholesome states that have arisen. And so right here in this um, right effort, we are looking at unwholesome states that have arisen. We're meeting anger, confusion, frustration, hatred, rage, desire, greed, confusion, all these difficult reactive states. 
which are usually often when we are caught by them, they are experienced as suffering. And so meeting these unwholesome states with a heart that is unconstricted, this almost this definition of, of wise mindfulness, the ability to open to allow, meet what is happening, not judging it, not pushing it away. That quality of mindfulness is very similar to this quality of love, this unconstrictedness. And when that unconstricted mindfulness meets suffering, the flavor of compassion can be a support and can also naturally arise for us. Very naturally arise because when that heart meets suffering, that, that mind, that, that, um, the mind that is not resistant to what's here, Compassion very naturally comes. This feeling of compassion, I talked about the jello, you know, the feeling of the jello, and when touched by suffering, that quivering heart, that quivering of the heart in response to suffering is this feeling of compassion. And this feeling of compassion also comes with a movement of heart, an active quality of heart that wishes to alleviate that suffering. And so there's this active component to compassion. It's not simply that quivering that quivering leads us to want to connect and to uh, somehow reduce the suffering. So that combination of the quivering heart and the desire to alleviate the suffering. Those two come right together in this um, second wise effort, generating the desire to abandon the unwholesome can be understood as the heart of compassion wishing to alleviate the suffering of that unwholesome state. There is a quality that's very similar to compassion that um, we need to kind of recognize is just slightly 
off from compassion, and that is the quality of pity. The quality of, oh, you know, in, in, in relationship to somebody else, oh, poor you. I'm so, um, you know, I feel so sorry for you. There's a, it's close to that quality of compassion, but there's, with pity, there's a little bit of kind of the, um, what's the right way to say it? It's like the, almost the assumption that there's a little bit of that glad it's not me in there potentially, but also potentially a little bit of the assumption that it couldn't be me in a way. Because when we truly recognize that whatever suffering is happening, whether it's, it, you know, whatever suffering's happening anywhere, someone in a situation of having, you know, their house burned down in a fire or having a diagnosis of a terminal illness. You know, when we really recognize it might be us, Pity isn't quite, isn't the response. There's much more of a sense of respect that comes and the recognition, it might be me next time. And so this pity, also in terms of our internal um, meeting of our own internal suffering, sometimes we can have a sense of, oh, why me, poor me, you know, that, again, isn't the quality of compassion. That's, I think we may have a clearer sense of, of self-pity as not necessarily being such a helpful thing. So the framing or the phrasing of this second wise effort to generate the desire to abandon unskillful states that have arisen. So unskillful states, I think we've explored this a little bit, but just to, to recap a little bit, unskillful states are those states that lead us to suffering. Those states that are based in greed, aversion, delusion, the reactive states of mind, anger, hatred, confusion, ill will, frustration, whole host of reactive mind states, all of which are based in greed, aversion, and delusion. And so the abandoning of these states that are connected to or, or um, arising in dependence on greed, aversion, and delusion is this, when they arise, the encouragement with this wise effort is to abandon them. And so abandon. Abandon might not be a word we associate much with compassion in our um, familiar ways that that word is used. I looked up some synonyms for abandon and out of several of the definitions, we w I, I don't think we would consider abandoning to be something helpful or wholesome. Some of the definitions are, you know, 
forsaking, deserting. You know, we desert, we, we abandon children. Uh, and that's not considered a good thing, you know, so it's, it's, so that definition of abandon, of forsaking, of, of deserting, of ceasing to support, that's not the definition where, well, there's ways in which we could see a connection, which I'll talk about maybe a little bit in a minute. We could see a connection to the meaning that I think that is being pointed to in this second wise effort. Another, another definition of abandon is, you know, um, uh, careless disregard for consequences. Also not such a helpful perspective. And so, you know, that, that notion of, um, acting with abandon, you know, not regarding the consequences. This is not what the Buddha encourages us to do. But there's another definition of abandon, which feels very resonant with what we're talking about here. And this is to um, relinquish something because we understand the danger that it poses, or we understand that it's not of value. And so the phrase abandon ship, the captain tells everyone to abandon the ship when the ship is going down. It's not a safe place to be. It's no longer a safe place to be. So we need to abandon it. And so this is really resonant with what is being pointed to. I feel in this, uh, second wise effort to abandon the unwholesome states. We abandon them not out of repression, but because, or a helpful way to explore this is to look at, can we understand that these unwholesome states are not helpful? They actually pose a danger to our hearts and minds. They do not serve us. And so this is the, this is a piece of what I think this wise effort is talking to. So this kind of abandoning, you know, leaving a place because we understand its danger that's a compassionate action to take care of ourselves, to take ourselves out of danger. So again, a very connected relationship between compassion and abandoning the unwholesome. When there is unwholesomeness arising in our minds, the most compassionate thing we can do for ourselves is to abandon it. So this abandoning, this letting go, I think another connotation to abandoning that we have is that we're actively doing abandoning. And I think this is, this is kind of woven through many of the definitions of abandoning. 
and the abandoning of unwholesome states can have a kind of an active quality to it. We may be able to recognize and touch into a sense of, oh yeah, this is, this isn't helpful. Let me try something else. And so the active quality, and this isn't helpful. Again, this isn't helpful connects to the compassion. This isn't helpful. The heart that sees this suffering quality isn't helpful. Is there something else to try? And so there can be an active quality to this second wise effort. Actively letting go of unwholesome states different tools for this and different ways we can explore this. One Gil, Gil mentioned yesterday, actively using thoughts. If our thoughts are kind of, you know, caught up in something, we can consciously use thoughts to uh, kind of change the landscape of our minds. And so this is one approach Actually, the Buddha recommends in one text, the Buddha recommends different approaches for, for um, working with difficulty, working with difficult thoughts in particular. And one of those is replacing thoughts. When there are unwholesome thoughts arising, replace them with more wholesome thoughts. And so this is something we can sometimes actively choose to do. If we are having... Uh, thoughts, uh, uh, you know, if our thoughts are running rampant around a situation that is making us angry, it might be useful to um, put your thoughts on something else, consciously pick something else to think about. And this is one way of abandoning that, uh, that state. Now, it's not about repressing. Abandoning here I think is in no way about um, kind of pushing down out of aversion. This is not about aversion. Again, this uh, this saying no or or um, um, meeting suffering and uh, recognizing, oh, this isn't helpful. Can I do something else? It's not about. It's not about um, an aversion to it, but can, you know that sense of compassion of it's not helpful. Can I try something else? We can also another tool for um, uh, when something is particularly challenging for us, a difficult state of mind is coming up, and this is one of the ones that. I used quite a bit around some particularly sticky states of mind, um, redirecting the attention, similar in a way to thinking about something. But in this case, this wasn't about thoughts. It was simply about picking something else to put the attention on. And so seeing that um, anger was arising. In my case, this was, a, this was a situation where anger was arising and recognizing that trying to be mindful of it wasn't actually helpful because each time I tried to be mindful of it, it's like I just went into the rabbit hole of the anger. 
And so after a certain period of time, I began to recognize the most compassionate thing was not to try to be mindful of that. And instead to step away. So again, the compassion can come in here to support us to, to shift. And for myself, that shifting of attention from this kind of um, experience of anger arising, for me, what was most helpful was to um, turn the attention to something neutral. You know, to just put my attention in my feet, walk in on the ground, something really simple, easy to connect with, something grounding that the mind could land with and be with for a little while. Just give myself a break from it. Very helpful in that situation. So very compassionate thing to do in that situation, to give myself a break from that. And at times we may have to be more firm with our uh, mind states. There's one um, in that same text I was talking about where the Buddha talked about replacing thoughts. The last option he gives is something like um, bearing down with your tongue pressed against the roof of your mouth, crush mind with mind. That kind of sounds like a version, but I'm, I'm pretty sure the Buddha isn't suggesting a version here. What I do think he might be suggesting is a very firm no, much as you might say to a child who is getting ready to head into danger. Again, you know, you're, we're looking at the danger of this situation. At one point, one Thanksgiving, my two-year-old nephew was just gleefully running around the house. He'd found a circuit that he could just run circles and circles and circles. He was kind of going faster and faster and faster. And I was sitting in the dining room watching this unfold. And I watched him as he um, ran into the living room and ran straight for the fireplace, which had a fire burning in it. So instead of doing, you know, the loop, he, he, I think he might've gone slightly out of control and he was headed right for the fireplace. And I was not in a place where I could touch him or reach him. But I said, with all of the power of my voice, stop. Out of understanding that danger. So this is the kind of no that sometimes we need you know, in, in, in our own minds. No, that's not helpful. I'm just not going to go there. And there may well be some aversion in that. If you wait until there's absolutely no aversion, you may end up down the rabbit hole. And yet sometimes we can recognize, yes, there is aversion, but there's also this recognition of the danger. There's also the recognition of this is not helpful. There's also the recognition of this is a compassionate action. And maybe we can land a little bit more on that side, the compassionate side of the action, rather than the aversive side, when we need to kind of be firm with ourselves in that way. So sometimes this abandoning can have this active quality, can be 
about redirecting the attention, doing some, something actively. And sometimes the abandoning happens in a different way. There's another teaching. Um, the Buddha points to a whole bunch of different reactive states of mind. And in that um, sutta, he's using the term kilesa, which literally means stain, like a stained cloth. That these reactive states stain our minds. There's an understanding of the possibility of purity of mind and that these are stains in that purity. And um, the, the translation that's often used for that word kilesa is defilement. It's a, not a word we have a lot of good feeling about. But then as one of my um, uh, fellow meditators said, we're not supposed to have good feelings about the defilements. <laughs> so the, in this teaching, the Buddha lists a whole bunch of different defilements and his encouragement in this, he says, understand the defilements. Know, know ill will as a defilement of the mind. Knowing ill will as a defilement of the mind, one abandons it. Knowing greed as a defilement of the mind, one abandons it. So knowing that it is a stain, knowing that it is not helpful, one abandons it. And in that um, teaching, I, I, I like to explore the emphasis on the knowing and the understanding. This connects to the Buddha's first noble truth, that uh, dukkha should be understood understanding dukkha comes through being with it, meeting it, seeing it in action, neither, as, uh, as we've been talking about, neither giving into it nor repressing it. So the, um, the work of understanding is the work of wise mindfulness. And there's this possibility as we explore understanding any reactive state, as we explore that possibility, holding it neither reacting nor pushing it away, the mindfulness that holds it begins to understand something about it. One of the things it begins to understand is that it's not helpful. It understands at a very deep level the danger of these unwholesome states. And because that understanding of that danger is so clear in the mindfulness there's a natural movement to let go. That natu- there's a natural movement of the heart to release what it understands as 
danger. Abandon ship. This ship is going down. So this aspect of abandoning, essentially abandoning through understanding, this is a lot of our practice. You know, we, we meet our experience. We recognize, oh, this is what's happening. That we've been talking about this allowing attitude of meeting whatever's here. You know, that, that will create the conditions for that understanding to arise and for the mind it's a, that, that the transformation happens through that understanding. Our system really fundamentally does not want to suffer. And we've gotten so confused. You know, we actually at some level think that some of these um, reactive emotions are helping us. But as, as we bring wise mindfulness to our experience, know it, get to know it, it begins to expose that misunderstanding, expose the delusion that those states have pulled on us, that these, these are helpful somehow. It begins to expose, no, this is not helpful. This is dangerous. And because our system wants to move towards well-being, that understanding we don't have to do the letting go when the mind understands that danger at a deep level, the mind will let go. And so this is a kind of abandoning through wisdom, through understanding. And so this is a lot of our practice, how to do this, how to meet our, our experience in a compassionate way, in a curious way. How can we be with our experience, be with the difficulty? So it's not always possible, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes we need to use some strategies to step away from something. If we find that trying to be with something difficult takes us down the rabbit hole of it. But Sometimes we have this um, belief that, oh, there's something unhelpful arising. I'd better not be with that because that's unwholesome. So let me get out of here. And we, we, we kind of don't necessarily, we don't, we, sometimes we don't give ourselves credit for having the capacity to meet something with mindfulness. We may be a little quick to do the active form of abandoning and not try on or try out the understanding form of abandoning. And so it can be helpful to just see, you know, not to jump too quickly to, um, the active form of abandoning, but explore, can I be with this? Is it possible to be mindful of this? And, you know, roughly I have a guideline for myself. If I can be with it and it doesn't feel like it's getting worse, that's mindful enough. 
It may not feel like it's going away, but if there's the capacity to hold it, witness it, see some aspects of it, understand its suffering. That's a lot of the reason sometimes we think it's a problem because it's painful, but that's actually, you know, that's the wisdom. That's, that's, that's the, the understanding pointing out, wow, this hurts. Anger doesn't feel good. This unskillful reactive emotion is painful. That's wisdom at work, helping us understand it's a place of danger. And so just because it's unpleasant and just because it's, 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 it doesn't feel good isn't a reason to automatically jump to the active abandoning. And again, it takes a little bit of discernment to recognize, is it, is it, if it's getting worse, if it feels like it's, you know, spiraling and the mind is getting more caught in thoughts about this reactivity, that's probably a time to step aside, to use some of those active abandoning tools. But if it feels like that can be held, even if it doesn't feel like it's releasing just yet, there is some, probably some learning happening, some understanding. And you may not even know what that understanding is. I find it really helpful, a tool or a kind of a, 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 an attitude, actually, more than anything, of curiosity to my reactive states of mind is one of the most helpful tools. That curiosity can create a field of compassion in which the difficult, re- the reactivity can be seen. So curiosity, some of our big patterns, some of our big reactivi- reactive states have so many different threads, so many different layers to them. It's like they're, 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 they're pretty big sometimes. And, uh, you know, we, we, we may have a sense of impatience around it, but can we instead just hold it with some curiosity and some compassion, a recognition? You know, when we touch into the, the pain or the, the suffering nature of that reactivity, sometimes a way into that compassion is to just remind ourselves, yes, this is suffering. This is what the Buddha talked about, understanding as a way to freedom, understanding suffering. So I use that sometimes when I'm struggling with some things like, right, oh, this is suffering. It can bring that softer heart of compassion that lets the mind hold it lets the mind investigate it. And so a kind of compassionate investigation, meeting that reactivity, especially with the bigger patterns, the ones that are really complex. I sometimes even have an image of a gesture of like wide arms, just hold that with as wide of arms, big of space, as possible. Again, this, this, it feels like a gesture of compassion to hold it, not to kind of have the impatience of digging in there, finding all the pieces, pulling it apart, like taking a 
pickaxe to it and trying to like get rid of it basically you know that movement of impatience and wanting to get rid of it as opposed to holding and being willing to witness allowing the uh, wise mindfulness to help us to understand so that the transformation and the abandoning can result and so that wide, those wide arms um, I'm reminded of uh, an image that my um, my teacher, one of my Burmese teachers, Saito Upandita, used about meeting experience: a soft cloth polishing a bowl. This kind of meeting, you know, enveloping with kindness, with warmth, with compassion. So this investigation of what's here, it's really a holding, a touching. It's got a quality of a heart that's willing to be met and to meet suffering. That heart of compassion. And so in exploring these challenging patterns you know, sometimes we might seeing, I mean, sometimes seeing the many threads or many layers uh, that are at play in a challenging pattern, we might, and sometimes we can kind of dive in. It feels like, you know, oh, this, I got to I got to figure this out. That, that kind of like pull it apart instead of like just polishing this with a soft cloth it's like well let's take a hammer to it and see how it's made almost you know almost that kind of movement in to pull it apart that's often what we think of when when we use the word investigation so i'm wanting to frame it as compassionate investigation is much more receptive it stays with experience but it's not doing violence to the experience. And so noticing, just receiving, you know, the, for me, the most, the first kind of approach is just, okay, what's obvious here? What is most obvious about this big mess? Well, that is a big mess. That's what's most obvious. Okay, well, that's okay. And as I sit there with this kind of wide arms, it's like the pattern is doing its thing. And while I'm sitting there holding this big mess, it's like some little piece of it. Oh, there's frustration in there. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Oh, there's confusion. Oh, there's anger. And, and I don't have to go looking for it. It's showing itself. And so what's obvious? This is, this is a really helpful, compassionate investigation. Not looking for anything in particular, but being available to see what's here. How does it make the body feel? What's your relationship to the to the pattern 
Are you frustrated by it? Are you angry about it? Sometimes those, those relationships are hidden for us. Want it to go away. Sometimes it can be, you know, helpful to kind of even take a bigger lens and say, okay, there's this big mess. And how do I feel about that big? Oh, I don't like it. Okay. Well, there's a big mess and I don't like it. Can I hold that? Another tool that I find really helpful along the lines of the, the really broad attention, the, the holding a, the pattern with wide arms. Sometimes I find it helpful if a pattern is particularly sticky, a difficult um, pattern is particularly sticky, to um, consciously remind myself that this pattern is not the only thing that's going on in the present moment. Because sometimes if, if it feels really big and it's like it's, it's our whole universe, like we're, it's kind of like it's a big mess and our heads are buried in that big mess, it can be useful every now and then to pick our heads up out of that big mess and say, oh, oh and there's seeing happening. Oh, and there's hearing happening. And, and there's some body sensing. Oh, and there's the big mess. So it, just kind of broadening the attention a little bit to remind yourself there's other things happening right now that can give us a little bit of perspective that sometimes we're not able to have when our head is buried in it. And another useful, um, tool around patterns that are so sticky. Um, this one's actually more helpful than might, it might sound, um, so patterns that are sticky, that are really familiar to us, often um, they rear their heads a lot. You know, we might get little breaks from them, but they're, they come back a lot. Um, it's really useful to just simply recognize. And I spent, I spent some t a particular chunk of time on one retreat around a, a low-grade depression I was experiencing uh, when I was at Shui Umin monastery in Burma over a course of a couple of weeks, this low grade depression would come and it would go and it would come and it would go. And I, I began to just kind of acknowledge in a very simple way, oh, here's this depression. And the depression's not here right now. Noticing when it's not happening can be very powerful. Because especially with these really um, familiar habits that come up a lot, we sometimes impute a permanence to them. It's like, well, yeah, it's not happening now, but I know that it's really there and that's who I am. When it's not there, sometimes we can really see, oh, actually, it's not there right now. It can begin to poke holes in that belief in its permanence and that belief in its stability or its identity. And so all of this compassionate investigation does bring this quality of the willingness to meet and be met by suffering. And it can bring in the, and we can explore bringing in the quality of compassion actively, but it also can arise very naturally as we engage in this way.
And so these wise efforts, and you know, particularly these first two, I mean, the the active, you know, um, the refraining from or the desire towards the non-arising of the unwholesome states that have not arisen, the desire towards the abandoning of the unwholesome states that have arisen, they can feel like very active um, um, things that we're doing. And, um, you know, the others as well, the cultivating the wholesome states that have arisen, the maintaining wholesome, uh, cultivating uh, wholesome states that have not arisen and the maintaining wholesome states that have arisen. The, the very framing or um, um, words that are used to describe these right efforts, a very common question is, well, doesn't white wise effort and wise mindfulness, aren't they like counter to each other? Because with wise mindfulness, we're kind of taught to just rest with what's happening. And with wise effort, we're encouraged to abandon the unskillful and cultivate the skillful. So how do these work together? <coughs> so what I would say is that, and, and a little of the flavor of what I talked about with the understanding leading to the abandoning is relevant here. Because when we have the capacity to hold experience with wise mindfulness, when the mind can be curious, non-reactive, available with that compassionate kind of heart to hold whatever's happening, that allowing, that loving heart, that that heart that can hold without resistance. When that is there, when that capacity is there, all four wise efforts are simultaneously happening. So for example, if we are using wise mindfulness to meet anger, and we're able to meet that, see it, see it as a pattern, feel into it, not get pulled into it. That is creating conditions for, I mean, it is, it is, that is the work that wise mindfulness is doing the work of abandoning through understanding, as we talked about for the second wise effort. It is also creating the conditions for because we're beginning to understand the danger of that anger, it creates the conditions in the future. It, it encourages less anger to arise in the future. That first. We can continue in the dark, although I guess I've lost the power to the microphone. Um, So it creates, that mindfulness creates the condition for um, those reactive states to not arise as much in the future. So that's that first effort to in, engage towards the non-arising of unwholesome states that have not arisen. And then the third 
The third right effort is cultivating wholesome states that have not arisen. Cultivating the wholesome states. You know, we are cultivating through the engagement with observing the anger. We are cultivating the wholesome quality of mindfulness. The ending of anger creates the possibility for the arising of love. So we are creating conditions that will encourage wholesome states to arise. Mm 